Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, this is a very special summertime episode of The Pillar. I guess kind of, I, I hate to say it, but I guess in a certain way, kind of end of summer episode of The Pillar Podcast in a certain way. Um, summer is rapidly I'm sad to say, coming to a close, and uh, and we're making a very special episode, so I guess it's, in a certain way, a very special end-of-summer episode. Um, I guess it is kind of the end of summer. I I don't know. Time time is a flat circle. I, I Well, no, this is, this is... I'm being unfair, because you have children that are going back to school, and I do not, but I soon will have the children. Um, the child. The child. Wait, you're not having twins, are you? Are you guys having twins? No. Oh, man, I was hoping you would because it would double my chances of getting a child named after me uh, no. or some other having some other role in the child's life. But, but whatever. I mean, we don't need to talk about that now. I don't want you to be uncomfortable, but it would double my chances of having some sponsorship role, if you will, in the child's life. I understand. Um, but no, we're definitely not having twins. Uh, but anyway, no. So, you know, Triplets? summer is summer is kind of, you know, I like, you know, I still have the sort of emotional attachment to the academic calendar of, you know, the summer is right. June to sure. August. And, you know, mm-hmm. but especially in D.C. where the weather is horrendous, um, you know, summer is just kind of this long stretch of time uh, that yeah. doesn't end till the end of September when it's just, you know, unpleasant to go outside. And Which is probably appropriate. I mean, that's because that because that is a more seasonal sort of right. assessment of the whole thing. Yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But nevertheless, I'm I'm looking forward to the end of quote unquote summer, uh, by which I mean sort of other people getting back to work and doing the sort of things that they do about which we do the journalisms, which right would be because nice. it's still it's still the slowness of the summer journalism, and actually that's what makes this a very special episode of of the show is that we're going to kind of do something. You know, we're sort of talking about what we should do on the show today and. Um, we could kind of talk about things, but, uh, you know, things in the news and, and, and whatnot. But, um, the truth is that, uh, um, it's, it's a slow, it's a slow week in, in certain ways. Now, obviously there's a lot going on in the world, but for our beat, it's a slow week. One thing that I sort of want to acknowledge that's happening in, in relation to the end of summer is just that, um, Catholic schools are getting ready to start in some parts of the country. Um, and, uh, and not in your part of the country, I think, because school probably doesn't start, until after Labor Day, as is proper. But here in the West, school is going to start just any day now. We're going to homeschool the big kids this year, but our uh, son Davy is going to go to preschool, and I think preschool starts on Tuesday or something like that. So school is school is here, and uh, and Catholic schools are facing another year of pandemic stuff. And I talked last week about being tired of the pandemic and all of those things, and. Um, I've been noticing, you know, that in a lot of parts of the country now, you know, and all of us, I'm sure, are noticing this, but in a lot of parts of the country now, like sort of what's under discussion in many places is mask mandates in school, and then what counties decide about mask mandates in school relates to what Catholic schools do, or in some cases are required to do, and many places are required to do. But for Catholic school administrators, there's, a, I think, um, an expectation that Catholic schools would not be sort of required to do what they're required to do by their county health departments or that they would choose not to by some parents. And it just seems like, um, as I've talked to principals and superintendents uh, and pastors from all around the world, a really big and difficult, excuse me, from all around the country, a really big and difficult headache right now is just that um, Catholic schools are going to have another difficult year, or at least going to enter this year with another sort of set of difficult expectations and perhaps even difficult to parse and understand expectations with regard to the pandemic and masking and testing and these kinds of things. And it seems to me that 
whatever happens in each Catholic school, there's going to be a cadre of parents who are deeply unhappy about it, which means that um, Catholic schools are going to open under sort of the cloud of difficulty with parents perceiving perhaps that administrators aren't doing the right thing and administrators being criticized by parents for that. And all of that just makes for, you know, another hard year of beginning school, which is which is the reason why I've, I've sort of been uh, praying for Catholic school administrators and, and probably ought to be praying for Catholic school parents too, but just for kind of peace in a set of circumstances that's largely outside of the control of, of both of them and yet impacts them and which people, about which people have obviously lots of, lots of feelings and thoughts. I, about which they tend to be reactive. Yeah. Well, I, I, in the, in the more than a decade for which I was married and we were not expecting children, um, it was always, you know, difficult and, you know, there's the infertility is a suffering, um, of its own kind. But the one thing that never made me suffer was listening to friends of mine who were parents discuss school and issues around school administration and all that sort of thing. I always just thought, good Lord, if there, if there is a silver lining to the cloud of not having children, (laughs) it is not having to deal with the educational system. So I am, yeah, I am now becoming more peripherally aware of all of the things that you were just talking about and thinking, oh, Lord, I'm going to have to deal with this, aren't I? And sort of rubbing my eyes in anticipatory anxiety. I, I do f- I do feel very glad to be – it was not initially sort of our plan to continue homeschooling after the pandemic, and um, it just sort of was the way that things worked out. Um, but, um, but I do, as I kind of look at how I th- much of a headache I think a lot of this is going to be – I do feel glad, uh, all the more glad. Uh, I mean, and Kate has been doing like an unbelievable amount of preparation for homeschooling and like making all these awesome books and I mean, all kinds of cool stuff. And so homeschooling is going to be fun around our house. We got the other day, this big plastic, um, body, this big clear plastic body with like organs and nervous systems and veins and things that can be taken out and put back in and things like that. And so there's going to be cool stuff around here, but seeing all this, I'm glad, you know, for this reason too, that we have the blessing of being able to uh, to, to homeschool and, and, and all that too. So anywho, it's going to be, well, all I can tell you is if this carries on, thing. I'm going to teach my child to read and write and pray and then scour the world for a monastic community that will take him or her, uh, at the youngest possible age. <laughs> I just, that, that seems to me by far the better option at this point. I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll learn, maybe I'll learn better. But uh, at the moment that seems to me to be, you know, preferable. We could have like a whole substantive conversation right now about schooling and what schooling is and what it isn't and issues related to the church, what the church teaches about schooling. But I actually I, – I, I want to shelve that. And uh, the reason is because I kind of uh, thought that since it's August and um, the news is for the most part kind of slow, we could just sort of dip into our grab bag O questions, which is to say that you readers frequently uh, send to us questions, canonical questions of various kinds or questions about the church and the news or the church and the world um, – about canon law, as we are both um, canon lawyers, questions uh, about a great many things. Some of you send us questions about, like, um, your lives, which is very, uh, which for me at least is, like, very humbling and, uh, and um, like, I, for which I feel woefully ill-equipped to answer when it's like, well, what do you think I should do in this situation or that situation? Please bear in mind that uh, we are always glad to hear from you but are not actually wise in any meaningful way. But... Um, I did think that we could sort of dip into, but keep them coming anyway. Um, I, I, I'm always glad to get them. With that said, I did think we could kind of dip into our bag of questions today and uh, and just kind of t- go through as many of them as um, as uh, we're able to get through. What do you think, Ed? I love it. I love a good canon law, silly season grab bag. Why not? I think it'd okay, be fun. Okay, great. 
Well, let's do it. Um, and uh, and we're going to start with a question that we got in the in by email just a couple of days ago. And I, I think you were copied on this question, so you got it. But we have not. We're kind of picking these at random, and we have not prepared answers to them. So what you're getting essentially is Ed and JD hot takes. Co- Canon co- law hot takes. Canon Law Hot Takes. Ed and JD, Canon Law Hot Takes. That's thank you. You're you're a good brander. Ed and JD's Canon Law Hot Takes. We've got our codes of Canon Law in front of us and uh, and our commentaries uh, n- nearby in case we need them. Uh, Ed sort of scoffed at the notion that we might, but we might dive to a commentary. No, sorry. No, that was uh, me arching my eyebrows at the sound of the freight train, which appears to be coming through my front garden. I Well, at any rate, we've got our... We've got a, we've got now a freight train, our codes, and our commentaries, and we are ready for Canon Law Hot Takes. And this is one that we got by email not too long ago. Uh, here it is. I have a friend whose employer decided to mandate COVID vaccination. There is no escaping the pandemic. It generated an odd question that I thought might fit in a, pot, in a mailbag. Would it be legal, canonically, for a priest to require a penitent to get a vaccine as a part of a penance? I don't think that I've ever gotten a penance like that, but would it be legal for um, a priest to require someone to get a vaccine as part of a penance? Okay, so I, I assume we mean sacramental penance in this case. Yeah, so this so the, not a, so the scenario not a penance is penance imposed by executive authority. No, 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 no. A penitent goes to confession, um, uh, to the sacrament of penance, um, confesses his sins individually and integrally um, with with con- with a contrite uh, spirit and disposition. Um, resolves firmly to commit them no more. Um, and uh, prior to his absolution, I suppose, um, the priest discusses with him uh, a penance and says to him that um, his penance uh, ought to be to get a vaccine, in this case, I suppose, the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, uh, and and I, I'm not sure if the person is saying this is a condition of absolution or not, uh, we can kind of take it in either way. Would it be appropriate for it to be a condition of absolution, and uh, would it be appropriate otherwise as a penance? So, um, Ed, starting, let's start with the uh, what I think is the easier one. Would it be appropriate for a priest to require um, getting a vaccine for as a condition of absolution? Uh, no, 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 no. That would not. Are be you in the law there, sir? I, I am in the law. I'm looking for. I'm, I'm fishing around in the late 900s, where wherein you find within the blessed. Book four on the sanctifying function of the church, the canons relevant to the sacrament of penance. Seal. Interpret. This is going to be an interesting show because we are going to be sort of looking at the law, kind of scanning the law at various times. And so there might be these pauses, guys, but you'll hear our pages flipping. So that's something. Oh, no, I want interstitial um, music of the Jeopardy, you know. <laughs> Actually, I want, I want to... I, Actually, you know what I would like is rather than the Jeopardy one, we can use the Jeopardy one. But also, the are you familiar with the British show Countdown? I'm not familiar with the British show Countdown. I think does it use the song like, Final Countdown? No, it doesn't. It's the final. Countdown. It does not use no. that at all. Um, it's, okay, it's well, what does it use? Oh, it, it's it's like Jeopardy. It just has a sort of you know musical hook that they play when people are doing their homework on camera. Um, Turn to nine eighty. Yeah. Uh, if the confessor has no doubt about the disposition of the penalty penitent and the penitent seeks absolution, absolution is to be neither refused nor deferred. Absolution is not to be deferred, which is to say that a condition that sort of conditioning absolution on X, Y, or Z. If you do this, I will um, I will absolve you is not is not an appropriate thing. So um, so the the first thing could the confessor sort of condition the absolution on getting a vaccine? The answer is no. No, um, I mean you do have to have the intention to reform your ways and the you know within the context of the sacrament the way in which one is expected to manifest the intention to reform one's ways is to perform a proper penance 
duly assigned by the priest. Um, now, it is it is true that a a, a, um, a, penit- a confessor can refuse absolution if a person seems not to have an intention to reform their ways or is manifest and explicit about their intention not to reform their ways. So, if in other words, I go and I say I'm in a, a consi- I'm in I'm I'm in the mafia. I uh, I would like to confess that I am a hitman for the mafia, and every night uh, after I finish working at the pillar, I go and I do a hit. Do a hit? Is that do a hit? Um, and while you whack I need people, to keep, JD. Yeah, I yeah. I take them out. And uh, you're from Jersey. And, uh, yeah, I I do a hit. And um and while I intend to continue doing this, I nevertheless recognize the sinfulness of it, and therefore I would seek absolution. It is entirely appropriate for my confessor to say no if you continue to do hits. Um, if, and you intend to continue to do hits, I will not absolve you from your having done hits because you're you obviously have no intention of reforming or sort of abandoning the sinfulness. Um, but uh, but th- that is a condition under which um, the the absolution could be denied. But if I went and I said I'm really sorry that I've been doing hits, and I'm really going to try hard not to. The money's really good, and you know um, I like being in the mafia because we get to. We talk with, we wear kind of cool suits and we talk with funny accents and stuff, but also the money and my family, and I'm going to try really hard not to do it again. Um, in that case, sort of manifesting an intention um, to, to withdraw from contumacy, as it were, um, the, I don't think my confessor would have any reason to, uh, to deny absolution, but he would if I had every intention of continuing with the hitting. I might even be a little firmer than you're being there, but okay. How, how so? Well, I... <laughs> You have to you have to manifest the intention to avoid the near occasion. Um, if you're not departing the mafia, which is itself a criminal organization, you are not um, you're not manifesting the intention to avoid the near occasion of sin. So I I would say unless you're unless you're able to say to your confessor, and I have left the mafia, or I will leave here and go to sever my ties with said criminal fraternity, uh, I think that would be grounds for possibly withholding absolution i um well i don't know that might have to be discerned very carefully because leaving the mafia i mean just leaving the mafia is the kind of thing for which i could be myself hit for which i myself could be assassinated insofar as i know from movies and so if i say to the fellow i I am not at the moment able to sort of like formally resign from the mafia because i uh, because the consequences of that to my children and etc etc but i do have every intention of formally so in other words, there are reasons for me to remain in the in sort of this occasion of sin, which cannot be immediately overcome. Um, but I do have every intention not to do any more hits. I, I think I most certainly can be absolved. Mm, yeah. Familiaris consortio, Ed. Familiaris consortio, which is what I've been talking about this entire time. Familiaris consortio talks about the obligation of couples who are... I like um, that you've somehow set this up as a question about mafia hit jobs, and actually this was just a Trojan horse to talk about irregular marriages. You didn't know that I was talking about Familiaris consortio? I, honest to God, you're a New Jersey kid. I just thought you wanted to talk about guys in tracksuits. I really did. I Okay. Um, I guess I did. I'm not sure that I immediately set it up to talk about Familiaris Consortio, but I was certainly thinking about it as a parallel. So, um, uh, Familiaris Consortio, the apostolic exhortation, maybe, of John Paul II. I don't know what classification of document it is, but a document of John Paul II. It was was a post-synodal apostolic exhortation. Post-synodal apostolic exhortation. That's what I thought. Familiaris Consortio talks about the obligation of couples who are living together without the benefit of marriage to separate. In other words, that um, couples can't, um, you know... Uh, live um, in the mode of marriage in, in a married in the married way um, together with one another if they don't actually have marriage. But it also acknowledges that there are circumstances in which um, it may be impossible for couples to sort of disentangle their physical residence 
um, from one another or which, in which it might, might be just unadvisable. They are um, jointly raising children and for some reason at the time uh, unable to get married. Perhaps one of them was previously married and can't or hasn't gotten a declaration of nullity or something like that, but th- they're raising children together or they are um, elderly and caring for one another in a sort of caretaking way or or something like this. Familiaris Consortio recognizes there may be circumstances under which it is not um, morally possible or even or even advisable for the couple to physically separate their domicile, but they nevertheless have to um, abstain from conjugal root from having sex with each other, right? Because they're not married to each other. And uh, and if I were in that circumstance and I went to my confessor and I said, we can't separate because uh, physically, because of X, Y, and Z, we are going to continue, we have to continue to live together because we're raising kids together and we are we own a house together and we're financially entangled with one another and these kinds of things. But um, we are not having a sexual relationship with one another because we're not married to each other. Um, I, I most certainly could be um, absolved of previous uh, incidences of having sex, even if it might be possible that I might commit that sin again, um, I don't have, I, you know, I don't think the confessor can say, no, you absolutely, I absolutely will not absolve you unless you move out, given the, the dictates of familiar contortio. That's fine. But you are incorrect in your application of that correct application of familiar consortio to the instance of someone who kills people for the mob. Well, again, I think I, ha- I think don't think I can be absolved unless I tell them unless I, I go and I have no intention of killing no, any more no, people. No, 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 no. And let me tell you why. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because cohabiting with someone uh, in a non-marital way, while mm-hmm. open to misinterpretation and the possibility of scandal, which the church recognizes and advises that there be some yeah, sort of... Yeah, there's a hole to do there. There's yeah. a hole to do there, but the church accommodates that, is not in itself inherently sinful for a couple that had previously enjoyed quote-unquote marital relations despite not being married and who are raising Have children. sex. Yes. It's a family We can podcast. say that on the show. Can we? Okay. okay. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, for them to continue together in a domestic setting for the benefit of the children and to raise them in a stable manner is not itself objectively sinful. Membership of a criminal fraternity is. I agree that membership of a criminal fraternity is in itself objectively sinful, but I also think that it is possible that there may be circumstances in which I could not leave, at least leave right now, without being killed. And while I could discontinue doing the thing, um, the assassinations that I was doing, my confessor could nevertheless sort of recognize my discernment, my, my orientation towards being totally rectified from having left the, from from my mafia affiliation as a process, which is going to take some time. Well, Lest, no, the, for example, the, okay, my, that's my the, own but, kids be off. Fine, for goodness sake. No, but you're, hang on. You're changing the you're changing the terms of your own example. Here. I don't think so. Yeah, no. There's because well, how this started was a question about the firm intention to avoid the near occasion of sin in the future, and if as we started off just saying, well, I'm not going to do the killings anymore, but I'm going to stay in the mob. That, I think, poses a problem, whereas saying, of course, I'm going to stop the killings immediately and I want to get out of the mob and I'm trying to orchestrate it in whatever Oh, yeah, necessary. sure, sure. I thought that was kind of a given. Oh, yeah, no. uh-huh. yeah. you, you can't just say, well, I like the suits and, you know, hang out. And so I'm going to stay in, right? Yeah. No, I think that would be true. I think if I said I'm not going to do the killings anymore, but I'm going to stay inside this criminal organization and I'm not sorry about that. Uh, you know, I think then I think then the question would be, is it, is being in the criminal organization itself a sin? And I think, yes. And so, therefore. Well, the Pope has um, been very clear it's a sin. The Pope has been very clear. But I think if I said, I'm not going to do the assassinations anymore, I'm confessing those, I recognize that I'm in this situation where I can't quite leave the mob because they're going to assassinate my family or whatever, um, you know, that that would be a situation where I think I could be absolved even while remaining in this sort of difficult situation. Okay. 
We've talked at great length about things that were not the question we were <laughs> that were not the question. I know shall that's we, right. Shall we attempt to talk a little bit about the question? Yeah. Okay. So the point is, I don't think he can. I don't think he can condition the. Um, and, and there may be a more specific can about this, but I don't think that. Well, he so nine eighty one says the confessors to impose salutary and suitable penances in accord mm-hmm. with the quality and number of sins, taking mm-hmm. into account the condition of the penitent. Then the penitent is obliged to fulfill these personally. So. Uh, what I would say here is, what is the what is the sin or constellation of sins that renders um, the taking of a vaccine the appropriate right. penance? You know, right. the the penance has to fit the sin. Um, yeah. It's not okay to say, well, all right, you've been I don't know um, stealing from work, but I also know that you really don't want to get a coronavirus vaccine, so. Go and get a coronavirus vaccine. That's your penance. Yeah, I yeah. don't think that's a problem. So you'd have to find yeah. some way of linking the penance of you have to get a vaccine to uh, a, a sin in an appropriate way. And I and I can't see one. Um, even if you could, I think that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's gu- sort of guidance well, on the so, coronavirus. Yeah, this is where I was going to go with it to say, and even in above that, even if you could come up with a legitimate argument that says, well, you know, this would be a real penance that is suitable to some particular sin or sins. I don't know that you can impose a penance that basically involves binding the conscience in an area of legitimate freedom. I, right. I don't think that that is, I mean, I'm trying to come up with a, with an, with a sort of, you know, um, an, an analog to it of saying, you know, well, where's another case where a person enjoys, you know, legitimate exercise of free conscience in a thing and the confessor could bind the conscience to make a particular decision as a penance and I can't come up with one. Neither can I. I, I can see how if a person had a relationship of sort of like uh, of, of a person, spiritual direction is an interesting thing. And when people talk about sort of being under obedience to a spiritual director, I, 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 I don't quite sort of understand that. But I could see how if one were sort of if, if a spiritual director said, I, I don't think it's good for you to do this, or I think it's good for you to do this. And, you know, maybe even you ought to do this. I think that's one thing. But in the context of confession, to sort of require something because a person is bound to fulfill their conscience, their, their penance. Now we can talk about sort of this, the what that means in a minute. But still, I mean, there is a sort of moral obligation to fulfill one's penance, all things being equal. And so, to offer a penance that says, "You, yeah, you have to do this thing," which the church otherwise says is something which you can discern in conscience, which has a sort of perduring consequence, is different from, um, is even different from sort of like take, um, go on a pilgrimage. Um, you know, as a means of uh, making pen- of, of of doing a penance for your sins, a, a serious pilgrimage, a poverty pilgrimage, by which you are going to, you know, cross the country by foot to some sacred that to some sacred site. Even that has a sort of end; it has a definitive sort of end. Um, I am doing this thing as a penance, and then it will be over. Um, do this thing that will be that perdures um, and will have this be enduring in that way. Does not seem to me to be appropriate for a penance. No, uh, and and the other thing I would say about it is this. Um, one assumes, one hopes, that the reason a person has discerned in conscience not to receive a coronavirus vaccine is because they have some particular um, question of conscience and morality about it. Mm-hmm. Now, the church has, t- has been perfectly clear from the level of the Vatican all the way down that a Catholic can, in good conscience and complete moral freedom, take any of the available coronavirus vaccines. So I want to make that perfectly clear up front. Anyway, that having been said, that, you know, the church, rec- the CDF has recognized that some people may come to a particular um, 
sort of uh, more absolute moral determination about uh, the methods used for the development of vaccines in general and these ones in particular and may say that they do not wish to have even the most remote cooperation with the means by which those vaccines were developed, even though they stretch back and are, you know, effectively not cause and effect anymore, uh, going back to the 70s and everything else. Fine. But here's the thing with relation to the question we're asked. Assuming that the reason you're not getting the vaccine is because of that, a legitimate determination of conscience, to have imposed as a penance for a person to act against their conscience is, right. I would argue, mm-hmm. very, very wrong. Now, right. Agreed. so the only way in which I could conceive of someone telling someone to get a coronavirus vaccine in the as a penance is if yeah. basically they said, oh, I've been really meaning to do it. I know I should get it, but I've I just know been lazy. I should get it. It's just, you know, they're going to make me drive to this hospital center on the other side of Baltimore. And I just, you know, I don't want to. And get those things off your list. Do those things because you, you've confessed a number of sins related to sloth. And here's one thing that is for the common good. You yourself have discerned that it's for the common good and you're not doing it. Get that thing done. I, I can, I can see that. I mean, I would be a little bit worried about how that would be interpreted i guess but i can see that as a possibility yeah so that's that's where mm-hmm. i would come down on it if if yeah. the mm-hmm. reason that the person is not taking the vaccine is a discernment in conscience then no i you can't impose a penance that basically says i want you to act against your conscience in an area where your conscience has legitimate moral freedom yeah mm-hmm. if the person is basically resolved in conscience that it's fine to take the coronavirus vaccine even has the sort of you know um general intention to so to do but has not been doing it for dumb reasons then yeah. yeah, I could maybe see it there. Although, like you say, I'd be a little bit chary of how you phrase that. Yeah. What should you do, Ed? If you if you're given a penance that you that, what should you do if you can't fulfill your penance? Well, first of all, let's ask the first question: Is your is your absolution valid if you don't fulfill your penance? Yes. Yes. Sacramental absolution is either valid or invalid at the moment at which it's imparted. Precisely. If it's valid, mm-hmm. it's valid. That's it. It doesn't sort of. Um, you can't have, and interestingly, this is the same thing with matrimonial consent uh, in canon law, is that you can't have something like that uh, in a sort of suspended ambiguity. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yeah. it's not mm-hmm. possible. So if yeah. your absolution is valid, it's valid, whether you do your penance or not. Um, so, so there's that. So if you forget or you find you cannot do it later or whatever else, it doesn't invalidate your absolution. It, it yeah. might be a legitimate sin and something else for you to confess next time it, that you it, haven't it, done it. That you haven't, if you haven't done it, it might be a sin. If you, if you can't do it, um, if you find that you can't do it for practical reasons or more moral reasons, um, effective reasons, it, it seems best to discuss that with your confessor. Um, even the question of sort of whether or not that's a sin, it seems best to discuss it with your confessor or with another confessor. But um, the absolution is not sort of conditioned on the completion of the penance, to be sure. And if you forget about the penance, um, well, you got to ask yourself, are you forgetting about the penance habitually because you just don't care and it goes in one ear out the other? Um, Or did you forget about the penance? But if you legitimately forget about the penance, well, um, you you know, no one is held to the impossible, but one would hope that so well, much time would go by that you Presumably, about you're not bothered in conscience by it because you've forgotten yeah, about it. This is true, but one would and one would hope that so much time hasn't gone by that you've forgotten about it. If you find that you can't do it, it seems um, certainly because the absolution is not conditioned on it. Um, you know, it, it, it is a matter of conscience, but it seems probably best sort of worked out and discussed with a confessor. Is that your perspective on things? Uh, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would recommend that. Um, yeah questions about confession the answer is usually more confession yeah i mean i think if you just walked out and said i'm not doing that 
you know, that would be a, a bit of an issue. But if you sort of walked out and said, I don't think that. Well, I mean, hang on. I can understand. There are circumstances adjust. in which someone might walk out of a confessional and go, well, I'm not doing that. I mean, if, you're, if, it, if an illegitimate penance is imposed, there's but no. But again, the question is, is that because of belligerence or for a legitimate reason? That's what I was driving at. The imposition or the dis- or the no. I mean, if a person walks out and belligerently says, "Well, I'm not doing it," well, I'm no, no, yeah, sure. So, but I'm saying, if yeah. they, if you walk out and say, "I'm not doing that," because the it was an illegitimate penance that was imposed, right? Then I would say, "Well, yeah, then just you know, take your business across the street, um, find another confessor, and say, look, I went to confession. I confessed this. I had you know perfect contrition here. I really do you know all these things. The penance I was given was this, and I cannot in good conscience do that, and I don't believe it to be a legitimate penance because." For example, it required me to make a public manifestation of conscience right, uh, or something like that. And, you know, that hopefully the second confessor will say, yeah, you're not allowed to do that. Um, and I, I don't want to make that sort of like go to the second confessor because he has some sort of pa- magic power to release you from the first thing. No. I think the second confessor would discern with you whether that's a legitimate, you know, help you to discern yeah. whether that's a legitimate decision. If you can't go to the second confessor because, let's say, you live in a small town and you know, the other next parish is far away or you're in the military and the same chaplain kind of comes to your base every however often or whatever. I mean, I think a person can legitimately discern on their own, you know, this is just not a just or reasonable or possible uh, penance and therefore I'm going to substitute it with some other penitential act. But if that can be worked out, I think with another confessor, all the better. I agree with what you say, although I think if you're the kind of person who has questions about the the suitability and laicity of a particular pens to begin with, you're not going to be the sort of person who's going to sit easy with your conscience making a personal decision one way or another. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Yeah, it could be. I, I may be wrong, but uh, that's that's my expectation. Well, you've never been yet. Just kidding. <laughs> okay, have we sufficiently beaten this horse? Uh, yeah, I'm now wondering if we're going to get to a second are we going to get to a second question? Yeah, I'm just going to kind of spin the wheel of canonical hot takes. In other words, I'm just going to sort of, I'm going to scroll, I've got a long list of questions in front of me, and I'm just going to scroll up and down, and Ed, you tell me when to stop. I'm scrolling up, I'm scrolling down. Stop. Related to issues of bination and trination, which at some point you and I must have discussed, mm-hmm. I would be interested in understanding the rule and rationale for how often a layperson may receive the Eucharist in a day. Ah, okay. So, would you discuss how often a layperson may receive the Eucharist in a day, and the rule, both the rule and rationale for that? Yes. So we get to stay stay in the in Blessed Book, book four. four, or we even get to stay in Book Four, Part One, the Sacraments, and we get to head from penance to the Eucharist. Turn, 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 turn. Indeed. Got a cannon yet? Not yet. We're getting there. Canon 917. Yes. Yes. Canon 917 is the canon for us. Uh, a person who already who has already received the most holy Eucharist can receive it a second time on the same day, only within the Eucharistic celebration in which the person participates without prejudice to the prescripts of Canon 921, paragraph 2. 921, paragraph 2, parenthetically, I would note, is basically if you've been to Mass, but then later in the day find yourself in danger of death, you are to receive viaticum. Even if they have been nourished by Holy Communion on the same day, those in danger of death are strongly urged to receive communion. Again, Canon 921, 2. So go back to 917. A person who has already received the Most Holy Eucharist can receive it a second time on the same day, only within the Eucharistic celebration in which the person participates, without prejudice to 921. Well, 
leave aside 921 for a moment. So, Ed, what does this say? How many times may a person receive Holy Eucharist? Two. Two, although. Although. Two with an only. <laughs> Go ahead. What's The only being that you have to actually be, you know, attending Mass and participating. Uh, so this is before you even get there. I would actually say the number is three. Here's why. Hang, wait, 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 no, hang on. I want to see if I can figure out how your twisted little mind works before it goes there. I think that there. a layperson can receive the Most Holy Eucharist three times on a day. Maybe not often, but it could happen. Are you suggesting that if you one is uh, serving Mass and is serving three Masses on a Sunday, they might feel the need to receive communion at all three Masses? Is that what? No, I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that a person oh, might receive oh, the Eucharist once. Oh, you can do two plus viaticum. I beg your pardon. Yeah, a person might receive the Eucharist once then receive it again in, within the context of a, ma- a Eucharistic celebration in which they are participating, and then, having gone to Mass twice that day or received the Eucharist once not at Mass and then the second time at Mass, suddenly finds themselves dying, that might be the day on which a person might receive the Most Holy Eucharist three times. Yes. Yes. But the answer okay. is, and also it's worth noting, because I'm sure your code is as annotated as mine is at this point, uh, second time, that is the the... Subscribing it to two, a maximum of two plus not mm-hmm. with without prejudice to the Vaticum exception, two and only two is an authoritative interpretation that came from the PCLT. So this is not a sort of you know. Well, it's a says second time second. doesn't mean another time. Yeah, it doesn't mean another yeah, time. It, it means it, it, two it, it, and it, only two. two. Two and only two plus posi- the possibility of one. Yeah. So ordinarily, under ordinary circumstances, a person can receive the Eucharist once. Um, and usually that would be at Mass. But let's say that you, you know, you usually you ought to receive the Eucharist at Mass. But there may be circumstances under which you don't, you haven't received the Eucharist at Mass and you otherwise receive the Eucharist. A communion service in, in the absence of a priest or um, some other circumstance in which um, the Eucharist is distributed, but, but you're not at Mass. Uh, a communion service is one that most kind of concretely comes to mind. Um, so let's say that that happens. You don't think that there's going to, here's the scenario. You don't think that there's going to be a priest at your parish on Sunday because the priest went on vacation and uh, and forgot to get coverage. And so um, the deacon comes up at the beginning. Uh, everyone shows up for Mass, and the deacon comes up and says, Attention, everyone. Attention, everyone. Um, Father went on vacation, and he forgot to get coverage. And, uh, and so we do not have a priest today, so we are not going to have Mass. But we are going to have a Sunday celebration in the absence of a priest, a liturgy of the Word with the distribution of Holy Communion. And so we, we don't have a Mass, properly speaking, but we have the readings, and then the distribution of Holy Communion. One, you might receive the Eucharist under those circumstances. Um, or you might receive it at Mass. But if you, uh, let's say that later that day, Father rolls back into town and he says, sorry, everybody, I totally forgot to get coverage. I really, really forgot. Uh, I haven't offered Mass yet today, so I'm going to offer Mass if you want to come to Mass. But you fulfilled your Sunday obligation because that wasn't on you and you were there and everything. But I'm going to offer Mass. And, and you guys are like, yeah, we like going to Mass, so we're going to go to Mass. Um, that would be the circumstance under which you might receive the Eucharist under the, the, the second time in a, in a Eucharistic sacrifice in which you participate. Now, participate means um, full, active, conscious participation in your vocation as a layperson, the mystical participation of prayer and offering your sacrifice in union with the sacrifice of the priest at the altar. It doesn't mean like being a lector or being a, an altar boy or something like that. It means participating in the sense of being uh, present and assisting spiritually in the work of the priest at the altar. Um, so those would be the two, as I see it. I, I feel like there were there were other more accessible. Um, Give it to me. Exactly. Uh, you're a daily mass goer and a daily communicant, and you get up on a Saturday morning and you go to mass, as is your wont, and then later in the evening you go to a wedding, and there is mass. Oh, at that the, could be. That could be. That could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can uh, you take yeah. it a second? Yes, because you're attending yeah. the mass. Da-da. What this is meant to stop 
And this is where we get to the rationale. This is where you get to, and, and you do see this. I mean, in, I, I live not in the District of Columbia. That would be disgusting. But I, I live <laughs> near the District of Columbia. I live in the general environs of the District of Columbia, wherein, like a rose on a dunghill, one will find the National Shrine of um, the Immaculate Conception, the Mother Church of uh, the United States. And in the crypt there, there are, in times not corona, um, lots of beautiful little chapels in the basement. You often see priests and pilgrim groups from all over the uh, mm-hmm. country celebrating masses there. And mm-hmm. um, some particularly irreverent clerical classmates of mine when I was at grad school played what they called shrine mass bingo, where they would try and see who could be the first to celebrate on every single side altar in the shrine. Oh, that's kind of a cool game. Well, yeah, but there's a Maronite chapel that's actually locked. Um, so it's really oh. hard to finish the game. Although we did have a classmate who was a Maronite and people kept asking to con celebrate with him. And he thought they were showing real spiritual fraternity and everything is really, and then when he figured out what they were doing, he got really angry. Um, celebrate with him, but they didn't have, they would have had to have a bi-ritual faculty. No? I, yeah, but you know, these were first year JCL students. So what do they know? Um, <laughs> I would hope they would know that maybe you, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Anyway. Um, but you, you will in ordinary time see lots of masses going on but you will also see the kind of I, and I don't want to I don't want to cave into stereotypes here but a, a well, certain don't. a certain kind of pious usually old lady well I don't know or it, it needn't be it, it needn't, needn't be, be an old lady. but I'm just trying to paint a, a, a picture a pious person who sort of goes from mass who to mass flits to mass. from mass to mass to mass to mass to mass all through the day and is receiving communion every single time or mm-hmm. even is passing by at the point of a mass where the priest is distributing communion in the small mass that he celebrates and just gets in line. And, and a person could do that because they have a, a like a, a, a very sort of distorted understanding of the sacrament of the of the nature of the sacrament itself. You know what I mean? Like a person could have a sense, well, the more Eucharists I receive, the more Jesus is in me or, or something right. like the, that. There's, would, the, there is the sort of natural religiosity which views the species as talismanic, as magical, right, exactly. as mm-hmm. I need That's the magic right. thing. Right, I need the power that comes from it or something right. like that, which is not how the Eucharist is. No, and that the reception of communion outside of Viaticum and, like you said, you know, communion services where the celebration of Mass is neither uh, is not possible or available. Um, outside of that, the reason the Church and the Canon says if you are actively participating in the Eucharist, you can receive a second time is because that is the proper setting for the reception of communion. Right. You can't separate Mass from the Eucharist. I'm so glad you're talking about this. It's it's very important that, you know, that this is the Eucharistic sacrifice is a coherent whole. Right. The offering of the priest, the anaphora, the Eucharistic prayers, all of these things that confect the Eucharist, the actual act of consecration, is not intended to be separated from the act of the reception of communion. That these because form it all co- fits into an act of worship together. Exactly. That it, this is, you know, Christ didn't say, you know, uh, take, eat, break, you know, pass, drink, but, you know, not now later yeah take it to go or yeah something. take it as a roadie it's like no no that's it you know and similarly the disciples weren't you know sort of coming in at that moment and that it's part of a coherent whole and it, you need to have um an understanding of the sacrament which is coherent and holistic which it is meant to be and also is rooted in a particular liturgical tradition which is jewish that mm-hmm. you know this goes back to the passover meal 
that the act of the preparation of the meal and the celebration is part of what informs the tradition of the Eucharist, that when Christ instituted the Eucharist, he didn't do it ex nihilo. He wasn't creating a new thing. He was elevating and sacramentalizing something that already existed and elevating it to an entire new dimension that, you know, had never been even conceived of before. And so it's important to take these things um, in in their whole. Yeah. That's right. Now, that's not to say, of course, that there aren't circumstances under which being nourished by the spiritual food of the Eucharist, apart from the Mass, isn't a good thing. Sure, a person we who said, can't be yeah, Mass and things like that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah or, or being sick or being... Right. I mean, I knew a priest who was bringing people Holy Communion Right. Well, there's a reason the why we take communion to people who can't attend Mass. It's oh, right. not a question exactly. of, you know, you can't if you can't. It's just a question right, right. of there is the... What is proper. Yeah, right. there is mm-hmm. what's proper, what is intended by the Church, how it is supposed to be when yeah. you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Did we answer this? I feel like we did. I feel like we did too. I think that point about sort of the Eucharist fitting into the Mass is really important. I think there's a way in which we can lose sight of the fact that the Mass is—I think there's a way in which we can too easily sort of see the Mass as the thing that happens so that I can get the important thing, the Eucharist, instead of seeing the Eucharist in the context of this this act of worship, which is the Mass— um, which is the worship that's proper to God and which is the highest expression of my humanity and my Christian identity. Right. And it's it's of a piece with, um, uh, again, a, a talismanic magical thinking about the church, her sacraments and her sacramentals that, for example, I mean, you know, you probably know more priests than me, which is, you know, not. I don't know about that. I don't know. We, we know a lot of priests. We know Our, a lot of priests. My social circle is fairly overwhelmed with priests as mm-hmm. a general rule. Mm-hmm. And they all report the same thing, which is on Ash Wednesday. Tons of Catholics come out of the woodwork who haven't been to Mass in forever and don't even make it to Mass on Ash Wednesday, but they all come knocking on the presbytery door at all hours of the saying, oh, you know, Father, can I get the ashes? Can I get the ashes? And it's like, well... Which, in my mind, I actually think, thanks be to God for that, because sure. sacramentals are a thing which can orient us in the right they direction. Are. But again, they yeah. speak mm-hmm. to a poverty of formation, because the purpose of the ashes is not they are a magical talisman. The purpose of the ashes is that they are an external manifestation of an interior disposition, to remember that one is dust and to what dust one will return, that it, one has adopted the Lenten spirit of penitence oriented towards Easter, that the reason that you receive the ashes in the context of a liturgy is part of a liturgy. It's part of right. a liturgy of, you know, beginning a new liturgical season uh, that, you know, they don't you, you don't just you're not supposed to go and just knock on the priest's door at 730 at night and say, ah, I didn't make it a mass. Can I get the dust? You know, it's like, no, that's not, that's not the idea. And I mean, again, there is a naturally religious impulse that you say, it's like, you know, better that they want it and understand at some level that there's something there for sure. Something is better than nothing, but there's a difference between natural religiosity and faith. Well, it was a real uh, change. I, I agree with that stuff. And I, I would say, um, natural religiosity points us. I mean, one of the coolest things about the faith is that natural religiosity is the, can be the foundation upon which the gift of faith comes yes. or is, grows and expresses and things like that. Um, one real inversion for me, just about sort of Eucharistic theology, um, it was a real change for me when I read, I think it was in the work of um, of, uh, of, of Bishop, um, oh, the, the French Bishop Ray, I can't, I can't remember his first name now, um, uh, Bishop, uh, you know who I'm talking about. I don't. Um, you are much better read than I am. This is this is a well, if not widely known, at least it is a well established fact that you are better read than that's I. That's not true. There's a French bishop, um, Dominique Ray. Yeah, Bishop Dominique Ray has a is a is a French bishop with a lot of good things to say, and he has some um, books on the Eucharist, which I think are translated into English. And w- one of the things he talks about, which actually is drawing from Benedict the Sixteenth, is the way in which adoration of the um, Most Holy Eucharist 
continues for us or is a way in, if, of like um, remaining connected to the Mass and prepares us for the Mass. That um, that I guess I knew intellectually but not sort of appreciated that um, the Mass is a higher form of worship than adoration of the Blessed Sacrament and that the, the adoration of the, the, the Blessed Sacrament in a certain way connects us to the Lord through the Mass, like connects us, keeps us in, in intimate continuity with the Lord through its connection to the Mass, because the Eucharist comes out of the Mass and also um, orients us towards the Mass. So if we grow in Eucharistic devotion through Eucharistic adoration, um, it, 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 like um, being in front of the Eucharist disposes us to better uh, to, to better participate in Mass and to sort of better um, receive and uh, appreciate and understand um what's happening in the Mass, and adoring the Blessed Sacrament also helps us to sort of like continue to unpack and um, uh, connect to our Lord through the Mass in an enduring way. And that's like a, that's a, I think a real, I, I, I think I might have known that intellectually, but it was a real change for me to see, oh yeah, this is, um, the Mass really is the center thing, and if it isn't for me, then something like the Adoration of the Blessed Sacrament can orient me towards the Mass, rather than, um, there's a way in which we can become very individualistic about Eucharistic adoration. Well, this is the time for sort of me and the Lord, right? And and this is the highest thing, because I have this intimacy with the Lord, and the Blessed Sacrament, and the monstrance here, and it's quite in the Adoration Chapel, and it's just me and the Lord, and I can uh, I can develop, I can grow in the spiritual life, in, in me- mental prayer, and contemplative prayer, and, 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 and those things are true. What's also true that I think we can fail to appreciate is that those things um better prepare us and form us to participate in full active conscious participation in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, which is the, the sort of pinnacle of the Christian life. The source and summit, if you will. The source and summit, if you will. So, I don't know, I'm no theologian, I'm not sure if I'm saying that well, but it was really a big deal for me to start to sort of think about things that way, because it was just a total switch from thinking, yeah, um, maybe thinking that Eucharistic adoration is the place for sort of the highest form of prayer, because it's personal and intimate, to thinking, no, actually the highest form of prayer is the Church's prayer. And I was always told and taught, um, and maybe you're better formed than me. Everybody, well, I don't know about that. Um, but I I was about to say, maybe I, maybe this was put to me in a pithy way, but a way that perhaps was deficient. And in which case I'm sure we'll have plenty of people, hopefully priests writing in to tell me I'm wrong, but, um, I was always taught. Oh, everybody writes in to tell us we're wrong. I know. I just meant orders to do that. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, anyway, but that the, the sacrament is, adored because it is reserved. It is not reserved to be adored. That the mm. function of the reservation of the sacrament is for things like viaticum. Mm. That it's not that we you know, say, oh, we really love Jesus, so we'll keep him in a box. Yeah, I, I guess that I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, it raises a question about exposition, which is certainly for Well, if the you've sin. got it, you the of course the right thing to do is to adore the Lord if he is there and present. Mm-hmm. And yeah. True, and not to ignore him and not to make much of the miracle that is there present, for sure. But that the you know the original intention of the church in permitting oh, the I'm reservation sure of the true, Eucharistic yeah. species was not a question of all. Well, wouldn't it be cool if we just you know sort of had had the species sort of suspended here uh, in time that we could then adore at our leisure and sort of put the Lord at our contemplative disposal? That that was not mm. the intention. That the intention was no, it is reserved for emergency use for the faithful. But since and from he, there grew but, a yeah, whole exactly. But since we have it. Since we are reserving it, we have to have somewhere to put it. So we have a tabernacle. Where do we keep the tabernacle? Well, obviously in the church. If the if the church is open and the Lord is physically present, of course, that is the focus of prayer and adoration and liturgy grows up around that. That is how I had it explained to me. Well, okay. I've never heard that, but 
I can dig it. Okay. Shall we do another? Sure. Okay. Wheel of cannons. Turn, turn, turn. Tell us the lessons that you should learn. Ed, tell me when to stop. Up, stop. down, up, down. <laughs> you sure? Oh, God. What? <laughs> I'm worried now. <laughs> no double dipping. If it's something we've already covered. Then. No. Well, I think we may have already covered this at various times in our lives. Um, and I think people might be tired of talking about it, so uh, we're going to... Excuse me, hearing about it. People might be tired of hearing about it, rather. Not talking about it. You guys are doing the listening. I'm not tired of talking about whatever it is that this is. But I'm going to give it another spin here, Ed, because I think we've talked about this before, and I think we'll probably talk about it again. Okay. Tell me when to stop. Stop. Tell me when to stop. Oh, for crying out loud, just pick one. <laughs> I didn't think that was a good one. This is an interesting one, though. And it's not precisely a canonical question, but I do think it's an interesting question. Uh, maybe it's a canonical question. I don't know. But I have some thoughts about it. You might, too. You hear about some older saints, this person writes, who left behind families, like left behind their children after a spouse dies, to found or enter religious orders, and they just drop the kids with some aunt or something. Does canon law say anything about this today? Would that ever be allowed? Uh, I'm not aware of a canon that specifically... You want me to go first? Please. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess you do hear about that kind of thing where um, maybe, uh, yeah. I, in fact, there was a saint that I wrote about in the newsletter a little while ago who um, the, the, uh, the husband died and the mom entered a, a monastery and the kid went to live with an aunt. I think it was exactly that. The kid went to live with an aunt. Well, the, one of the, which one of the Desert Fathers was it who, this was the start of everything, was his parents died, left him a fortune. He sold absolutely everything, dropped his sister off with relations and went and found an order in the end i think the sister went on to uh lead a monastic also yeah yeah okay so anyway you do hear about that kind of thing and and uh and you don't hear about it too much these days but there are some contemporary or contemporary ish examples of um of couples eventually married couples eventually sort of entering religious life getting a dispensation which i think is effectively a canonical separation with the bond remaining uh canon 1151 we're going to start with the law and then kind of go from there Okay. Uh, uh, I didn't. Re- I didn't remember eleven. The eleven fifty ones dealing with children. Cool. Not children, but we're going to start. Oh, okay. Separation of the bond. Start, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Spouses have the duty and right to preserve conjugal living, to live together as man and wife, unless a legitimate cause excuses them. Now we talk about that often. Spouses have the duty and right to preserve conjugal living. Spouses have a duty and right to one another to live as man and wife unless a legitimate cause excuses them. We often talk about that these days in terms of a legitimate, a legitimate cause being a legitimate cause for couples to separate or maybe even to pursue a civil divorce because of um, uh, uh, abuse of one kind or another uh, to, to either the spouse or to the children um, or other legitimate causes which may give rise to a separation and divorce. But this has also been sort of thought of um, in the history of the church as um, – Couples who have um, sought to separate in order to enter religious life. Um, Maximilian Kolbe's parents, who I realize are not contemporaries, and now that I think about it, that's like actually kind of far in the past, I suppose. But Maximilian Kolbe's parents um, did this. If I remember correctly, I can't remember when it was, but I think it was when all the kids were raised. Maximilian Kolbe's parents, after all the kids were raised, essentially went to their bishop and they said, as I recall correctly, we each want to be a religious um, of one kind or another, and they, they, you know, they had a had a holy and happy marriage. I don't think it's I don't think it's that they were, um, you know, mad at each other or something like that. Although who's to who's to say? I suppose. Um, 
but they, in, insofar as I recall, they separated to enter religious life. Now, someone may write to me and tell me I was wrong about that, but they separated to enter religious life after the kids were grown, and they perceived that to be a legitimate, a legitimate cause. I think there are other... Is that true of the parents of... Do I remember correctly that that's true of the parents of St. Therese or something like that? Or Pass. My knowledge okay. of St. Therese is very limited. Well, there are... I think there are some other... There are some other people like that. And, again, I'm, I may well be wrong about Maximilian Colby's parents, and someone, I'm sure somebody's going to let me know. But I know there are some saints who fit into that category. Um, and, uh, and, and there's a canon here, 1154... Uh, so there's so then the next couple of sections of 1152 and 1153 are sort of about reasons why people might separate. Um, if either of the spouses causes grave mental or physical danger to the other spouse or to the offspring, um, that spouse gives the other a legitimate cause for leaving. Um, As you know, with so, the committing adultery. What's that? As with committing adultery is the other main reason that's discussed for separation of the spouses with the bond enduring. Um, and then the canons talk well, a great a deal. About, bit, well, the canons talk not, a great deal about you know the praiseworthiness of reconciliation and forgiveness and readmission. It is earnestly recommended that a spouse moved by Christian charity and concern for the good of the family not refuse forgiveness to an adulterous partner and not disrupt conjugal life. Nevertheless, if the spouse did not condone the fault of the other expressly or tacitly, the spouse has the right to sever conjugal living unless the spouse has unless the spouse consented to the adultery, gave cause for it, or also committed adultery. I think unpacking that would be a very long thing and a very controversial thing. I don't want to talk about what gave cause for it could mean and these kinds of things. So I... I, I don't I'm want to unpack punt. it either. I just didn't want oh, yeah, to yeah, yeah. step over it. And... Oh, I was stepping over it. Because oh. <laughs> I think it would be controversial. Well, I didn't want people yelling at us on uh, in the comments saying, but you did you missed out this part. Oh, no, I was purposely <laughs> stepping over it because it's not related to this. Oh, no, I'm um, happy to just say it's there. We're not talking about it. Yeah, in addition to um, in addition to those things, that it is also true in the history of the church that people have been judged to legitimately separate for the sake of contemplation, you know, the contemplation of God in religious life, and uh, and and so eleven fifty four says, well, you can't just sort of whatever the reason for separating is, you can't just sort of abandon your kids. Period. After the separation of the spouses has taken place, the adequate support and education of the children must always be suitably provided. And so, you know, if you're going to separate for marital reasons, or if you're going to separate because you want to enter religious life, you better have effectively, you know, a plan to make sure that your children can be provided for. Um, but I think af- everything after that is kind of cultural. Today, I'm fascinated. Seem- I, I have read that again, and I don't know how many times, and it never occurred to me that after the separation of the spouse has taken place, the adequate support and education of the children must always be suitably provided for. It never occurred to me that that, that would envisage or be applicable to the idea of the spouses separating to mutually enter religious life. I it just, I mean, I, I'm not saying you're wrong. In fact, yeah, yeah. now that I'm reading it, this is like, oh my, yeah. It kind of reads like a benefit, right? Yeah, I mean, it does. <laughs> today in our contemporary it just culture, never occurred to me. it would seem so highly unusual because today in our contemporary culture, it is, you know, widely expected that parents and children live in, you know, close familial, that, that the familial life is expected to be sort of intimate interpersonal life, Right. But th- that hasn't always been the case in many ways. So, you know, if you think about a period of time in which children might... Um, uh, so my uh, plan to drop my go- kid off at a monastery or convent at age seven is totally legit. Right. But I mean, if you think about a period of time, it might be, although it's the kind of the opposite of this. But think about a time when children would be more frequently going to boarding schools or apprenticed at a young age yes. or otherwise um, being raised by another relative, maybe because of, you know, an inequity of resources or things like that. I mean, now... The notion of like a kid not living with their parents is like, oh my goodness. But but 
there are obviously ways in which that is um, that's a cultural condition of, of of right now, and there are obviously other ways in which um, the intimacy even of family life can be thought of um, and have been thought of in other periods of time. So I think right now, if a husband and wife said like, "Hey, we have kids in their teens or something like that, and we want to enter religious life," people would be like, "Oh, that's pretty weird." And I think the diocesan bishop who would have to sort of permit that, um, you know, for them to enter religious life would be like, that's pretty weird. And we don't think that's going to fly. But I, that, that, I don't think that has always sort of historically been the case. And, you know, I, I, oh, I just read about a woman who was widowed. She just died, but she was widowed um, and, uh, and entered a Carmel, you know, and she had kids who were like in their 20s, maybe the oldest, the youngest kid was in college or something like that. And, and uh, she entered a Carmel, like I want to say in the 60s or 70s, when her kids were, uh, you know, somewhere between 20 and then grown. And, and uh, and she just died, and so they had this experience of their mom their entire adult life being in a Carmel. But uh, I think it is something that is sort of largely culturally conditioned, but not something which the church says is absolutely problematic because it's happened, and there are saints who had children raised by other people because there was a time when just children were more frequently raised, you know, in in by a relative or or something like that. Anyway, yeah, I this was this was an unexpectedly um act, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't think we were going to have much here, but we did. Uh, cool. <laughs> so we do one more. Uh, yeah, by all means, one more. Okay, one more. Wheel of cannons, turn, 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 and tell us the lesson our listeners should learn. Tell me when to stop it. Oh, uh, just do you know what that's from? That's the wheel of morality from Animaniacs. Did you ever see the wheel of morality sketches of Animaniacs? I, I, I did watch Animaniacs when I was a kid, but I don't have any memory of that. But I. Okay, I'm going to send you some Wheel of Moralities this afternoon, and i probably put some Wheel of Moralities on Twitter, and then when you listen to this show, you'll know why. Okay. Wheel of Morality, turn, 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 tell us the lessons that we should learn. Ed, tell me when to stop. Stop. These are five questions. <laughs> we'll pick one. Uh, this is a moral theology. This is a question of moral theology. Oh, I the don't... disregard. No interest. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is canon law think, hot takes. I don't Take think your I theology even... elsewhere, people. I have no interest. <laughs> if I wanted to talk about that, I'd have got a different degree. <laughs> okay uh these que- these other questions here are uh, mostly about his are about history like what you know what happened in this year and this and i don't i would have to get a different set of books to be able to answer those so hmm. uh, canonically this is a good one canonically what is the difference between a right and a church are these two concepts necessarily connected and if so which is logically prior to the other does difference in right necessitate difference in church or vice versa to answer this it seems to me that we're going to have to turn over to our shelf to um, grab for ourselves the code of canons of the eastern churches oh boy okay what is the difference between a right and a church are they connected are they related does the difference necessitate difference in church does the difference in right necessitate difference in church or vice versa so. Okay. So, okay, are you there? Do you have your Eastern Code? I have my Eastern Code. I have my beautiful blue book. Yes. Would you like to read Canon 27? Surely. Canon 27 of the other blessed code of canon law. A community of the Christian faithful which is joined together by a hierarchy. Hold on one second. Sorry. Are you translating? Are you reading from the Latin and translating as you go? Yeah, I'm trying to. Good for you. Okay. Thank you. A community of the Christian faithful joined together by a hierarchy according to the norm of law and which is expressly or otherwise recognized as sui juris by the supreme authority of the church is called in this code a church 
sui juris. A church is a group of Christian faithful united by a hierarchy according to the norm of law, which the supreme authority of the church expressly or tacitly recognizes as sui juris. So a church is effectively a group of the Christian faithful united by a hierarchy. Right. And the Catholic church is a communion of several churches. Is that right? That is right. And so, for example, while it's entirely appropriately to speak of the Latin church, which we do, um, it is also perfectly correct to speak of all of the particular churches which make up the Latin church. Now, what binds the Latin church together, arguably, is a rite, the Latin rite. Um, and what is a rite, you ask? Well, if you go to Canon 28... So say that again. Just make sure everyone heard that. Say that again. So what binds the Latin church together... So the Latin church is what we ordinarily refer to as the Roman Catholic church. Indeed. Those the, of us who are... Yeah. Um, if you are Catholic and you don't know what you are, you're probably a Latin Catholic. Indeed. You're not you an Eastern Latin Catholic. Mass. It doesn't mean you go to Latin Mass. It means you're not an Eastern Catholic. You're yeah. what you would ordinarily refer to as a Roman Catholic. Indeed. And that within the Latin Church, which is proper to speak of, um, there are all of the particular churches, which is every diocese is a particular church. It is perfectly correct to speak of uh, the Church yeah, that, of the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. It is perfectly correct to speak of the Church of um, but that, yeah. Greensburg, so, Pennsylvania. That these so are the all... church is a collection of particular churches. But I think let's talk about churches sui juris as a way of sort of... Okay. Yeah. Um, wait, now you want to talk about churches through yours? Well, that's... so. I you mean, asked me to repeat so, what I said. So what I said is what binds these churches together of the Latin rite is indeed the rite that they have. Oh, yes. Yeah, thank you. Okay, right. Okay, so, so what is a rite? A rite is, according to Canon 28 uh, of the other blessed code of canon law, a liturgical... The code of canons for the Eastern churches, promulgated yes. in 1990. Yes. A rite is a liturgical, theological, spiritual, and disciplinary heritage differentiated by the culture, the circumstances of the history of the peoples, which is expressed by each church sui juris in its own manner of living the faith. I'm going to challenge your translation a little bit. Okay. It's, all, it's semantic, and I don't even know why I'm going to, but uh, I think a rite is the liturgical, theological, spiritual, and disciplinary patrimony, culture, and circumstances of history of a distinct people. Not So the, the people are distinct, um, and these are their things, rather than the People are differentiated by their culture and circumstance. It may be six one half dozen of another. Wait, sorry. Say say your part again. Say your translation again. Uh, liturgical, <laughs> theological, so... spiritual, and disciplinary. I said heritage, but patrimony. Fine. Differentiated by the culture and the circumstances of the history of peoples, which is expressed by the church sui juris in its own manner of living the faith. Okay, I'm reading culture and circumstances as still being in the list. Right is the liturgical, theological, spiritual, and disciplinary patrimony, culture, and circumstances of history of a distinct people. Ah. So I'm not so I'm not reading the people as being distinguished by the culture and circumstances of history, but but that culture and circumstances of history are among the things which differentiate a right. This is super pedantic and it doesn't is super matter. Super pedantic, but I we can we will we will all right we will, we'll put a pin in that latin scholars can because it's the latin ironies scholars. we're, we're latin arguing scholars, over yes. latin latin <laughs> which is neither of our expertise latin well, scholars and also not the like language of the eastern churches either no it's true uh this should be in greek or something but latin scholars if you would like a little bonus game uh, open for yourself canon 28 of the code of canons of the eastern churches and just tell us how you're translating it and uh if you write to us and tell us how you're translating it um, we'll be very grateful. And we'll tell you guys next week what the preponderance of Latin scholars have to say about this. It'll be At any rate, a rite is the liturgical, theological, spiritual, and disciplinary patrimony in addition to the culture and circumstances of history of a distinct people, by which its own manner of living the faith is manifested in each church or years. A rite is a way of living the faith. 
um, connected to a people by history and culture and liturgy, which includes liturgy and theology and spiritual uh, spirituality and sort of disciplinary patrimony, the way of being. Um, a rite is the way in which vi- different peoples, distinct peoples, have lived the faith. And so there is the Latin rite into which we all fit, which is a very, very big category with there are many peoples within it. And then there is, for example, um, the Ukrainian church, which carries within it its own kind of ritual traditions and history and liturgy and spiritual spirituality. And, 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 and these things are manifested, um, the, the, the sort of spirituality and spiritual Christian history of the Ukrainian people, for example, is manifested in their church suyuris, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. The same thing could be said for um, the Lebanese people, Lebanese Christians whose uh, history and spirituality and liturgy and um, uh, his, so, oh, circumstances of history are all sort of expressed and manifested in the life of their church through Eurus, the uh, the Maronite Church. The same could be said of the Syro-Malabar uh, Church mm-hmm, in, in India, India, or the Syro-Malankar Church in India. Also, well, uh, are... I would <laughs> yes, it is definitely distinct. Although the particular theological patrimony of that church, Sui Eurus, is interesting. One of my yeah, one of my points was going to be I actually. Couldn't tell a Ciro Malabar from a Ciro Malankar under any circumstance, but I'd like to learn. Maybe we'll do another show about that. No, I'm not going to. We won't. Okay. So <laughs> so the Catholic Church is a communion of sui juris churches, the Latin Church being the biggest, the one that the Pope tends to come from, but doesn't necessarily have to, um, the, uh, 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 the one to which you probably belong if you think of yourself as a Roman Catholic. Um, but that church is a communion with these other churches, the Ukrainian Catholic Church, the Maronite Church, the Ciro Malabar Church, the Chaldean Church, the Guise Church. Um, and, um, and those churches are sort of distinguished and identified. They have a juridic identity, which is to say they have sort of a hierarchical a relationship of hierarchy, which is recognized by the Bishop of Rome, the successor of St. Peter, the, the, uh, the, 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 the Vicar of Christ, the servant of the servants of God, the Pope. Um, so they have this sort of juridic identity, but that juridic identity is an expression of this um, cultural, liturgical, spiritual, historical reality, which is the thing which we would describe as their right. Ah, uh, Yes. And but I mean you can have you don't have to have one to have the other. You can have indeed distinct right. churches that all have the same right, mm-hmm. which yep. we have, you can have in the Latin churches church. with historical, so which have the same sort of liturgical expression, liturgical yes. right. But if a right is sort of a robust reality that extends beyond liturgy, then um, then they have sort of their own patrimony. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For example, uh, there is the well. So if we really wanted to. <laughs> If you really want to get into sort of a canonical gray area where language is extremely hotly disputed, yeah, you could this, talk about yeah. – uh, you're saying you don't want to? No, I do want to. Oh, okay. It's I was going to say tricky. you could talk about the ordinariates erected for former Anglicans. Mm-hmm. Um, there are three of those. Uh, there's the uh, – what is the, – the one over here is the ordinary of the chair of Peter. The, mm, the one over there is The one in the UK is Our Lady of Walsingham. And the one in Australia is Our Lady of the Kangaroo, I believe – it's not that. It's not that? No, I don't know what it is, but I'll guarantee you it's not that. Okay. Are you sure? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Keep talking. Okay. Um, anyway, it recognizes a distinct liturgical and spiritual patrimony that comes from the fact that they have come out of the Anglican communion and into full communion with the Catholic Church. Now, of course, if you go far enough historically back, the roots of the Anglican communion are, in fact, in the Latin Catholic Church. But nevertheless, over the hundreds of years of divergence, there have arisen, you know, it's kind of like the concept of evolution. If you take two species and you put one on an island over enough generations, it will turn into something recognizably different with a common root, but recognizably different. And if you bring it back, then, you know, you set it next to the ones that never left the mainland. They look 
you know, the, you can see similarities, you can see a common heritage there, but there are definite distinctions to be drawn. And so there's, um, there, are, there is a hot canonical debate as to whether or not the ordinariates are really in going fact, in the direction of being church who exactly they are yeah. not explicitly termed churches suiuris in the law of the church but there is a uh chorus of canonical opinion not a majority necessarily but a chorus of canonical opinion that says well this walks like a duck and quacks like a duck um why do we insist on calling it a mongoose uh, which, you know, I, I, is interesting. It's, I, and again, this is not to say, you know, there's a, there's a right or wrong here. It's just, you know, if you want to talk about the, the sort of fluid interplay between what is right, what is a church, how does one come about, how do, how does, how do these things come about in the life of the church? Like we're watching this happen in real time. Um, yeah. And so I think there the, the, we are, we're watching an evolution happen in real time. And if you remember, I asked, I think you were with me. I sort of asked a, at a, at a, at a conference about the um, the Anglican ordinaries a couple of years ago, if they were, for for a lot of technical reasons that have to do with jurisdiction, whether they were sort of, I, I asked some CDF officials whether they were sort of going in the direction of being effectively churches sui juris. And they kind of said like, hey, well, we're, don't say that out loud, but they do have jurisdiction and other things, you know, which are, you know, in which there are distinctions from their sort of territorial, their sort of territorial counterparts in the Latin church and which make them very distinct from something like the military ordinariate. So anyway, we, we don't know. But it, it left me with the feeling that that Rome does in a certain way consider the ordinariates to be closer to a church sui years than to be sort of simply a, a place for a different a liturgical expression. But I, I guess I, I realize that as, we, as we've been talking about this and as you've offered some clarity, I, I have not offered a sufficient amount of clarity there because I'm, try, I'm trying to... to simplify too much. So um, I, I want to say it like this. Um, rites are um, patrimonial expressions of, of the mode of being a Christian. And there are a couple of sort of recognized sort of historical rites in the church in that sense, the Latin rite, the Byzantine rite, the Alexandrian rite, and, uh, and a couple of others. And those are expressed in particular churches. In the Latin church, the Latin rite sort of as a in a, in a sort of historical patrimonial sense, it's sort of coterminous with the Latin Church, but um, the other Catholic churches, sui juris, sort of fit into the bucket of the rites rather than being rather than being them. So, for example, within the sort of the realm of things that we would call Byzantine in a sense of a rite, which would include the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom and things like that, there are a couple of different Catholic churches, sui juris, which have their own um, hierarchy and history of how they became sort of part of the communion of the Catholic Church, but they all sort of fit into this same ritual identity. I think you were saying that and I wasn't doing a good job saying that. There's another way that we talk about the that we use the word right rather than to mean this broad sense of sort of a ritual family and a sort of Christian family. We also mean a particular expression of the liturgy of sacred liturgy. So for example, in inside in the in inside the Latin rite and inside the Latin church there is the Ambrosian rite of the mass which is a long-standing sort of way of celebrating the mass that they did in Ambrosia, I don't know. Um, Milan, J.D. Milan, yeah. <laughs> I was teasing you. Um, or is there, there's the Dominican rite, which is the way that Dominicans have long sort of celebrated mass, which they still have the right to do. So all of that kind of, those liturgical rituals, which we call rites, fit into um, a particular church, the Latin church, but they also fit into a rite in the broad sense, the Latin rite. Um, and, uh, and so we have to distinguish, I think, between those three things a ride in a broad sort of sense of a body of tradition of living out the, the life of faith, um, a particular church which fits into and can be coterminous with a rite, and then what we'll call a liturgical rite, which fits into a particular church. Is that, uh, is that fair, Ed? 
I think it's fair. I don't think that we've offered much in the way of clarity. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it does for not example, apply. For example, you do not have a if you are a I don't know. Let's say a west side of Chicago Catholic. The quasi use of pierogi as a sacramental does not qualify as a right in the church. <laughs> I, I don't know if we've offered much clarity here or not, but when we talk about a right, we mean two different things. Either a, a broad set of sort of Christian patrimony, that is a culture, um, or a particular liturgical thing which fits into, which couldn't fit into that right. And then in the middle of that is this notion of sort of um, churches sui juris, which the Catholic Church is a confederation of, the Latin Church or communion of, the Latin Church, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which is fits into the Byzantine rite or the... Um, Alexandrian rite into which fits the Coptic Catholic Church or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Should we do one more? Because that was a tricky one. That was a pretty tricky one. Let's do one more. I mean, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I just would like to do one that is a little bit... Uh... Spinning. I'm spinning the wheel, guys. I am spinning the wheel. Um, this person asks... Um, are there any canons concerning beards? No. No, not in the universal law of the church. I do know of a diocese which prohibits its priests from growing facial hair. Uh, and um, it is customary Wait, in... It, it, oh, it's priests from growing facial, not its clerics. Yes. I was going to no. say, how do they have permanent deacons then? <laughs> no mustaches, no permanent deacons. Well, I... I do know of a diocese which, which prohibits its priests from growing facial hair because there's a long tradition of sort of um, secular priests, by which we mostly mean diocesan priests not having facial hair. And um, certainly we can think of a bunch of religious orders that have a long history of growing facial hair, um, that that's kind of become a part of like kind of the culture of the religious order. But no, insofar as I know, um, other than the, there is a canon, I think, about clerics needing to have a neat personal appearance. Um, other than that, I'm not aware of any canons on beards. That was a much easier one than rights, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. Okay. Listeners, if we didn't get to your question, we didn't get to your question. But if you have a canonical question that you'd like us to fumble through, um, by all means, feel free to uh, write us, uh, Twitter us, uh, Messenger Pigeon us, or otherwise um, communicate with us to send us your questions. If you love The Pillar Podcast, uh, don't forget to consider becoming a subscriber to um, The Pillar. You can go to PillarCatholic.com, hit subscribe, and uh, and uh, become a paying subscriber to The Pillar, which we would appreciate. And um, And by the way, we're kind of wanting to do something good this week, and this is what we're doing. Um, we want to help the people of Haiti who have been afflicted by an earthquake followed by a tropical storm, um, both of which followed a political crisis that began several months ago and culminated last month in the assassination of their president. The people of Haiti are suffering. Uh, we want to help them, and uh, we know that you do too. So this week... We are um, giving for every new paying subscriber that we get to The Pillar, which you can subscribe to at PillarCatholic.com, we will send um, $10 to Mission to the Beloved, which is a Catholic apostolate in Haiti, which provides um, both spiritual formation and evangelization and material support to Haitians. So if you want to uh, subscribe to The Pillar to keep it going and uh, also help the people of Haiti, PillarCatholic.com, hit subscribe, help us out um, because you love us. Ed, anything else? Uh, no, no. I I think uh, this was this an invigorating great. conversation. Hey, we'll see you guys next week. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. And this week, we were joined by your questions. Hasta luego.